Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Scott Radley sitting in for Bill. Today, we're going to chat about new rules for distracted driving that are in effect. You don't want to be holding your phone in your car, I'm just telling you, unless you like to spend a lot of money. An independent investigation has found or says carding by police is a completely useless, completely no good idea. Is it correct? Is it an accurate report? And I can tell you right now, science tells you, science tells me you are going to give up on your New Year's resolutions by a day in January. We'll tell you what day and maybe how you can defeat science and stick with it. All that coming up on the podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I hope you heard this. I hope you saw this. And if you didn't, well, we're here to help you out. Yesterday at midnight, 12 o'clock and one second a.m., new distracted driving laws came into effect in Ontario, and they are severe. They are serious. They, these are laws that, I, I'm telling you, pay attention right now if you haven't heard about this, because we are potentially going to save you a lot of heartache. On the first offense now, if you are caught, charged, convicted of distracted driving, you'll get a three-day license suspension a fine of up to a thousand bucks on first offense and three demerit points. Plus you can be sure that if this happens, your insurance companies will be only too happy to raise your rates considerably. And it gets much, much worse on second offense, third offense. And if you are on a graduated license, if you're on a graduated license, if you're a young driver, who's just got your license, who's working your way up, don't, it's going to be a nightmare for you if you get caught. The penalties are severe if you are in that position. And here's the interesting part about it, because that is just, that's a good scare. What's really interesting about this is what counts as distracted driving, what we think counts as distracted driving may not exactly be accurate. It's not just holding your phone. It's not just texting. It's not just talking with your phone. There are a lot of other things that you could get Nailed four on this one. Klaus Wagner is a constable, a traffic specialist with the Hamilton Police Services. He joins us now. Klaus, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Thank you very much. Um, I was reading over some of the rules of this. And again, I don't know how many people, act, I, I assume a lot of people heard about this, but I don't know how many people looked into this. Distracted driving is not just holding your phone and not just texting. It, it's lit, written down as anything that causes you to be less focused on the road. Which means what, Klaus? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so what a lot of people don't understand is anytime you're using your phone too. So basically, yeah, yourself, for the cell phone part of it, if it's in your hand, that's good enough. I mean, lots of times people will tell us or, you know, we, we pull people over and they say, well, I'm just checking the time on my, on my phone. And I always, my answer to that always is, why, the one on your radio there isn't good <laughs> enough. Um, but, uh, if you're using the phone, so if it's even if it's in a cradle, but say you're, you know, if the officer really wanted to be stiff about it, you're punching in the phone number. That's using. You can push to talk, but to actually use it, or if it's on the radio mode, or if you're using it as your GPS and you're typing things in, that's technically using. An officer could, and I and I stress that could charge you for that. But I mean, if it's in the cradle, we're going to give you some lenience that way. But now it's a GPS unit. It's the same thing. You're typing in things. Or the big thing we're starting to see now, for some reason, it seems to be a real fad right now, is you know some of these bigger phones, they have them in the, in the little docket there, and it's bumper-to-bumper traffic, and they're streaming a Netflix show. Or <laughs> I shouldn't maybe say Netflix. They're, they're streaming something. So they're using it. They're watching it. They're 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 receiving uh, something along that lines. So, or uh, you know, or you're punching. You're using your laptop on your on your on your passenger seat. All those things are under this distracted driving law. I, I suppose I probably shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't be surprised, but I kind of am to think no. that some people would actually be doing that, be watching a movie while they're driving along, even if it's slowly. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just you know what. Um, I have set, I've seen over the last few years um, the big thing we're going to is for some reason it's just people think it's just a part of their life now using their phone while they're driving. They they don't really see. There's lots of people who say that they they drive no differently. Um, I can 
tell you hundreds of collision reports we get where, yeah, it, it does affect you because, you know, you've taken away. And then the car companies themselves, and, and I'm blaming them. They're, they're trying to make cars mobile living rooms, you know, with all the different gadgets they have in it. Um, and people think just because the car does this, it stays in the lane, it keeps the, you know, backed off and stuff. You still have to drive the vehicle. You know, maybe the light sensor's out. Maybe this is gone. And people don't understand. You still need to operate. It's, driving a car is a verb, driving. It's not a noun. It's not just something you sit and do. And people need to start to understand that. It's not worth it. Very, there are a lot of stories that have been written about this new law, and they include a lot of different things and a lot of different possibilities. Let me throw a few of them by you as possibilities, whether this would count necessarily as distracted driving under this new, well, I guess under, it could have been under the old one, but really now under the new rules. One of the things that it talks about is eating. Is eating distracting my driving? It is, but not under this, not under this, this law here. Um, distracted driving falls back to our, our basically our overall guidelines of careless driving without due care and attention. Anything that you do behind the wheel of a car that's without due care and attention, an officer could charge you with something called careless driving. And, uh, you know, and eating, drinking coffee, all those things, even though we all do it and it, and it you know, Nothing ever happens, but say something did happen. You got in a collision, and, and we have a witness that says, as uh, as they were driving beside you, they saw the persons with their head down, and they were uh, cutting into their, uh, you know, their pre-made dinner that's sitting on their lap. That could be distra- that, that could be careless driving. Okay, so and the penalties are almost the penalties are almost the, are financially as severe. Uh, demerit points are a lot higher, six on conviction are uh, six points, and you could get a driver's suspension. So when you read these stories or read the, some of the things that say and eating, it's not necessarily meaning if I have got a coffee and a donut at Tim's and I'm eating a donut, that does not automatically mean I'm distracted. Oh my God, how would I get through a shift? <laughs> Fair enough. I, it, someone did ask me this though, and, and I don't mean to be picking on the cops in any oh, way, no. but they said, how come when we play around on our phones, it's distracted driving, but when the police can play around on their in-dash computers or onboard computers, they're not distracted. Okay, so uh, we've never really had an interview. Uh, Bill knows I talk straightforward. Yes, under the emergency vehicles, so police, fire, ambulance, um, we are exempt from that law. However, here in Hamilton, our own policy and procedure says unless it's an emergency, you should not be on your cell phone or on your uh, what we call our mobile terminal, uh, dispatch terminal. Some police services have even gone to where the officer can receive information because that's the way we receive information, not just by the radio anymore, like updates on the call you're going to, maybe suspect information and stuff. But some of them are going to blocking. So while the officer is driving, they're not able to type in anything while they drive. So our own policy, you know, tells officers it's unsafe to do this. Do not do this unless it's an emergency situation. And that's why you're, you're doing whatever you're doing. The interesting thing about this new law, and again, it really falls back to the old, I mean, distracted driving has been a word or a, a phrase that's been in use for yeah. a long time. And we, again, to where I started with, we think of it as holding your phone to your ear as texting, but I suppose that if you're fiddling around with your radio enough with your head down, that could qualify. And there's a lot of things that could potentially fall into this category. Again, yeah, if it's on your phone. Now, as of right now, because, uh, you know, the indoor uh, entertainment systems, as I call them, on some of the new cars, they don't qualify because they're, they're mounted, like I said. And most of them, it is pushed, you know, to use. Now, um, the G- when it co- co- talks about GPS units, um, you know, it came out starting with those little ones that you used to put on your dash. But um, if I, as a traffic officer, saw someone, again, like I said, I could, if I can plainly see it's, it's on the GPS mode and they're typing something in, like mm-hmm. new coordinates or whatever, that's technically using, they could, get, they could get charged under this section for that. If, I don't know if you've ever seen a Tesla, their there's, there, there's screen on there looks bigger than most, uh, most computer screens. Yeah, you got a 50-inch uh-huh. plasma in the front seat of your Tesla. Exactly. exactly. No, I, yeah. and, and we all love the idea until the temptation in front of you. That's, that, to me, is the thing. It's the temptation. Well, that, that's what it is. When I go to companies and I speak throughout this province, one of the biggest, the way I always usually kind of leave it, depending on what I'm talking about, but when it comes to this section here, I always say, try this today. And, and whoever, all your listeners that are driving right, around right now, I challenge you right now, if a text message comes in in the next, you know, for this drive here till you get home or to get to your destination, do not look at it at all. 
And then when you get there, then look at your phone and then see what it says. Was that worth $1,000, up to $1,000, $2,000, or $3,000, depending on how many times you've gotten this ticket, or a driver's license suspension? Was that, hey, are you bringing the coffee? Hey, are you doing this? What time are you home? Are those worth it? Because as I always say, I don't know if you, I've never received a text message that said, there's somebody in the house. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, that was a great you movie I mean? back in the great movie back in the late seventies. But oh, um, look at you! I, yeah, I always yeah. say that to my kids when, yeah. when my daughter moved out on her own. I phone her every once in a while and say that. Have you checked the children? Yeah, they're in the house. He's in the house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the I have to believe though that with these new laws and with this new enforcement, that w- would you expect that there's going to be increased court challenges to this because it does leave a certain amount or a, a, maybe a high amount of subjectivity that if I happen to have you as the police officer in the car next you may decide oh, i'm not really sure that's distracted driving but a different officer could describe it you could de- decide it is it's going to be how our officers articulate themselves in court that's why i say to our officers here in hamilton and i'm very strong about this is make sure you have good evidence you cannot use evidence such as I, their head kept on looking down into their lap you don't know they might have just a piece of paper in there they may have they may be looking at the you know unfortunately the the lap dog uh, you know on they may be doing something else you have to have good evidence you have to say that was you know that you saw a cell phone in their hand it looked appeared to be an iphone this that it was black it was white whatever it is um, that's what you want to get to to make sure that we have good evidence that the justice of the peace because remember we can do what we can put people in front of the court all the time it comes down to the court saying you know they believe you know they 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 take the evidence of the officer over the other person who says um, I wasn't doing that or that it was it was this or it was that we I even had person once recently this last year say to one of my officers no no it was my um, What's the old way we used to get messages? My um, my fax pager. machine. <laughs> it was a pager. It was a pager. Do you know what I mean? And things like that. So until you know, you know, we have to put things in front of the court. We have to have strong cases. We have to have good information. We have to get good convictions. Um, but people are still going to challenge it because they they don't understand. Because when you get your driver's license, one of the questions is not on there is. Driving is a privilege, yes or no? What says right in the act? Driving is a privilege. And until people understand that, that just because you have a driver's license doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. That the, the, the ministry can say all of a sudden, you know what? You didn't do this. You didn't do that. We're taking your license away mm-hmm. from you to, to, to show you that you cannot drive like that because it puts us all at danger. And you talk to any person, you know, when you do out, go out and canvas people and you'll hear people say, yep, it's, you know, it's against my rights and this, they can't do this and they can't do it. But you talk to somebody that's had a family member that's been affected by this, they're saying there's, mm. the charges aren't strong enough. So it depends what side of the fence you're on. Because this is a newly enhanced law, are we expecting there will be a blitz right away? It, it, should we be expecting lots and lots and lots of these tickets to be handed out in the next few weeks? <laughs> As I always like to say, educational. No, <laughs> um, you know, we're, you know, but this law, the law has been in there. Like, there's really nothing's changed. It's only the fines uh, and the penalties that have been changed. So the, the rules really haven't changed. You know, there are still people out there that don't understand, like you mm-hmm. said, that don't understand that just because you're holding the phone and talking, you have your head up, because that seems to be the big thing. That new, you know, how people seem to hold it with their hand like that, like they're holding a, uh, a cupcake or something, and then they're driving with their head up. They think, well, I'm doing okay this way. So those things. You know, it's educational that way, but it's the fine. So uh, the first time an officer pulls you over, and my suggestion is right now is our officers will you know check to see if you have a previous conviction. If you do, they'll 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 serve you a summons to go to court, and that allows the crown to ask for the maximum fine, which is to up to two thousand dollars on the second conviction, and uh, three thousand on the third. If it's your very first ticket, it will be what we call a set fine for six hundred and fifteen dollars, and on conviction, three points, and the ministry will send you a letter saying your driver's license is under suspension for three days. Three very quick things before I let you go, which yep. I think are common, and I've wondered these myself at times. I have on my dashboard one of those things I bought at Canadian Tire that clips onto the dashboard that can hold my phone. Is that sufficient as an out of hands, as I've mounted thing, or does it have to be a factory installed mount? Nope. That, that's perfect. As long as, um, they, uh, as long, like I said, as long as you're only pushing to talk on it, pushing to, to dial on it, you know, because technically if you're punching a bunch of stuff in, you could be considered using. There are people who would say, okay, what if I put my phone on my lap? Don't use my hands. It's sitting on my lap and I push to talk and I use a speaker. Is that allowed? 
and like I said, yeah, that that would be fine. Uh, but you know, uh, don't be continuously looking down because it's just human nature for some mm-hmm. reason to look down at when we're talking like that. So be careful that way. And the other one that I found really interesting, because it was in a story that I was reading about this, it never dawned on me. There was a time several years ago I was driving along the highway and saw a drunk driver and called 911 and then followed at a distance to tell the police where yeah. this guy was going. And it says, no, no, if you're going to ever call for an emergency for whatever reason, you have to pull over and do it. Even if you call 911, you have to be off to the side of the road? Nope, great way to finish. Nope, that is the one exemption okay. that you were calling 911. And always remember, uh, you know, uh, as the old joke says, I was born at night but not last night. Don't say, well, I was calling 911 because it would be very easy for us to, <laughs> to find out if you were if you had been calling 911. Klaus Wagner, uh, Hamilton Police Constable, Traffic Specialist with the Hamilton Police. Really appreciate the time. Happy New Year. Thanks for doing this today. And don't be one of those 303 that we caught last year. I will do my very best. Thank you, Klaus. Appreciate it. All the best. That is a word of warning to all of you out there. If you're driving right now, put the phone down. Honestly, don't start your new year with a $1,000 ticket and three days without driving. That would not be good. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Want to talk about carding? Not the kind you did just before Christmas when you sent lovely pictures of your family to all your friends. That kind of carding, nobody I don't think has a problem with anymore. But there is a different kind of carding that is much more controversial that is now the subject of a new report that is just out. Uh, Justice Michael Tulloch was hired by the Kathleen Wynne Liberals to study whether that government's regulations on carding. You'll recall they they banned, they came up with policies that banned police carding, stopping someone to check on them without them doing something wrong. Uh, they wanted to see if, they, have this study done to see if their policies were accurate and effective. Well, Justice Tulloch wrote this, there is little to no evidence that a random unfocused collection of identifying information has benefits that outweigh the social cost of the practice. Now, he wrote 310 pages, so that is the shortest possible summation of his conclusions. Basically what he says after doing this study is, no, carding has no value to our society really, and therefore should not be done. Now, of course, not everybody is going to agree with him. There are many people, including many people in policing who think carding has a place, carding helps solve problems, and they point to statistics. We'll get to all those things in the next few minutes. Ross McLean is a crime specialist. He's a security expert. He's a former Toronto police officer. He joins us now. Ross, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, good to join you, Scott. Do you agree with Justice Tulloch on his conclusions? Well, let me put it this way. Justice Tulloch, who isn't really writing this as a justice, right? He's writing this as a lawyer that's been hired to do this, wrote the 310 pages, as you said, and his conclusion, if you read it, to me, is a very slippery denial of the fact that it works. His conclusion, as you read it there, says that an unfocused, uh, random, arbitrary stopping of people doesn't seem to have any effect on crime. Yet his 310 pages goes on to list all the ways that police are allowed to interrogate people, allowed to stop people, how carding, when it's defined as being street checks, so he sort of splits the hair on them, calls them two different things, works, and police are entitled to do it. So it's sort of a misleading conclusion, the way he's written it. What it basically says, the whole report as I read is it, it, cops need to do this, it's their duty to do it. So that's kind of a, a, a very trickily worded conclusion there. This, well, there's been lots of argument and lots of debate and lots of going back and forth on the whole concept of carding. We, we know we had a trial here with the city councillor in Hamilton about this. Uh, several months ago, the Peel Regional Police Chief, Jennifer Evans, said to the Globe and Mail, as a quote of hers, this has empowered criminals who think officers won't stop them. They are now more confident that they'll get away with carrying guns and knives. We've seen an increase in violent crime over the past year. Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe that whether or not carding by its nature works that people who now know that they are not to be carded, that they can't be stopped for checking on these kind of things. Do you believe it has empowered certain people to do things they otherwise might not have, or would have been more cautious about? Absolutely it has, but in conjunction with some other rather bad uh, government decisions. You know, the, the other one that ties into this, Scott, was back in about, I think it was 2012, uh, some smart superior court justice decided that uh, the minimum for carrying an illegal handgun of being three years was unconstitutional. 
And it went, and so from 2012 on, that law was never enforced, it was never charged, it was never used. The Supreme Court uh, finally said, uh, through doing a, a crazy hypothetical, they said, well, what happens if a legal gun owner's permit just expired overnight and he didn't have a chance to get to the place to do it? We'd have to give him three years. So it must be unconstitutional based on that hypothetical case. So what happened in 2012, the bad guys learned that there's no longer a minimum charge. That was our lowest point for homicides across Ontario, certainly within the GTA uh, and down Hamilton Way. And then since then, it's gone up. And right after that, the carding stopped. Everybody came with the stopping carding, the unofficial, then the official stopping. So now you have bad guys who know there's no consequence to carrying a loaded handgun and police who aren't going to stop them. The two of those together has created a deadly elixir that's resulted in all this violence we're seeing breaking out across the GTA. And it's not just guns. I mean, the, the, there are guns are certainly part of it, and they are often cited as something with the carding. I, I'm I'm with you. I've argued on my show and on the station a number of times. It seems to me the way you stop illegal guns is by coming up with such an extensively punitive sentence that it deters people. It's on first offense, it's ten years. Let's put someone. If you want to carry an illegal weapon, let's not make it unconstitutional to have a minimum sentence. Let's make it so that everybody knows if you want to have that, you're going away for a long time. That's it. But the other part of that, you're absolutely right there. The other part of that is your likelihood of being caught. So if the police aren't checking you, and look, the bad guys know this. I have, I, I talk to cops. I've gone to homicide scenes. I've even basically stopped going to all the homicide and shooting scenes around here because there's too many of them. It takes up too much time in the Toronto area. But I've talked to cops who work in intelligence and work there, and they say you treat, and they know who the bad guys are. They treat them as if they're carrying. You know, and one of the things, you know, there was just the human rights report put out that's saying that, uh, oh, police are out shooting black people uh, way too much. Well, I believe one of the cases that they have woven in there to show that black people are being killed too much was a, was a black suspect who was wanted in a double cold-blooded homicide, shot two people in the head, both in one night. The police knew who he was. They were looking for him. They had him cornered. He opened fire on the police first. This was caught on um, audio, so they know that that's how it happened, a body cam. And then the police shot and killed him. So that was deemed to be sort of, oh, see, the police aren't doing their job correctly. So when you start using stats and doing this stuff, it's a very dangerous slope. Do you believe that police now since these, and it's not just since, what, 2017 was when the carding rules came into effect that you really couldn't, but it was all through 2016 as well that it was being talked about and really changes were happening. Do you believe officers are less inclined to get involved in stopping people, even if there's suspicion of something for fear they're going to be accused of being called racist? Absolutely. I mean, I mean the, the carding regulations that were brought in by the Wynn government, and I, I I can't believe the way that she wrote it and brought it in and the way they put it in. It resulted in the police being basically told to Fido, don't get involved with that. I mean, even the justice in his report came out and recognized that because guess what? As I said before, the carding, their regulations turned it into reverse carding. Police, if they stopped, you had to give you a card with their name and phone number or their name and badge number on it. And what was happening was some of the cops who were dealing with these really bad people, they were having threats against their families and getting stuff on social media after that. So even Justice Justice Tulek has recognized that, saying that now, in certain circumstances, police feel their safety is at risk, they don't have to issue a receipt. So it it is a problem, and and the pendulum has swung too far the other way. I mean, the charter rights of a gangster, I guess, to walk around carrying a gun without being bothered, overrides your right not to be shot or caught in the crossfire. The irony of this, to me, and I was thinking about this yesterday, Uh, and he ended it today with this report, that we do have legal carding in this province. Not only do we have legal carding, we've just put in a a form of legal carding. I was just talking to the traffic cop from the Hamilton police. With this new legalized cannabis law in this country, uh, you're allowed to smoke the drug now, take the drug, but you're not allowed to drive with the drug. So we have this new thing that came in in the middle of December that allows the police now to pull you over with no necessarily no suspicion of impaired driving and force you to take a breathalyzer test, seems to me that's carding. That, that is a form of carding just without calling it carding. And so we're fine with that, but we don't want this. It, it's a confusing situation to say one way of stopping you to check on your behavior is no good, but one way we encourage. No, absolutely. And one of the things you'll get if, if anybody takes the time to read through the justice's report is they turn what should be a simple police interaction 
into a 300-page legal song and dance that police have to consider while they're out live in the field dealing with situations. You know, the same situation that a cop is going to make the decision as to whether I'll ask someone, I'll detain them, or I'll ask them for their information, is the same decision that if it goes to court, judges will take weeks to pour over and look at case law and look at minutiae and how many angels are on the head of a pin to decide if that decision that was made in that instance was the correct one to be made. So what happens is you come up with a very impractical regulation and a way of dealing with the crime. And I have to say right now, the crime is failing on the side of deaths and homicides. I mean, the head of Toronto homicide was, he didn't quite make this quote, but it sure sounded like it. He basically almost said that for Toronto, 90 homicides a year is probably going to be the going rule. He didn't quite say it that way, but he said he has to prepare his department to deal with 90-odd homicides a year. You know, and there's one other one. And again, it comes to the point of the complication of this because we are we are very aware and very conscious and very sensitive about carding. And someone else mentioned to me the idea that we essentially, we do things in our society that separate people by whatever grouping. I mean, we, we if you're a young man, a young boy in this province, you're go, based on actuarial, based on statistics, you're going to pay much higher insurance premiums on your car insurance and yeah, but that's, we're doing that specifically because you are a young man. The, these kind of things, this is not unique to just the carding thing. We found trouble with this one, but there are other places in our society where we're very okay with having people separated by groups and based on statistics or whatever else that we will look at things differently. No, you're right. And, and you're, you're, you remind me now to bring up another point that actually, uh, gives me real cause to, to, uh, consider what this justice has written. He wrote a big section in there on implicit bias. Mm -hmm. And the implicit bias, whether you can agree with it or not, but you certainly cannot disagree the fact that there are many people who are calling that now junk science and debunking it. Now, it's a liberal thing. They brought it in to train everybody to do it and, and everything else. The implicit bias that you're biased, even though you don't know it, and you have to somehow catch yourself in your unconscious bias. So the fact that the justice would bring that into the report, when it's not, I would not call it um, uh, complete science that everybody agrees upon. There's a lot of people who call that junk science. So that's another issue in there. That being said, there's no room for racism in our society. There's no room for racist cops. You know, there's no room for that at all. In the past, I've said before, where the police departments blew it up, was when they decided there, in about 2008 to 2012, they started putting quotas on carding and quotas on this. So cops knew if they didn't get, you know, so many cardings a month, they weren't going to get promoted. They wouldn't get certain things. Hmm. So that's where that mistake came in. That was corrected. So get rid of that. But please, let's not let gangsters intimidate the good people who are trying to live and get by in some of the hardest, worst communities to live in. I don't, I certainly don't claim to know. I don't think you necessarily know. I don't know that anybody knows because we don't have stats about who, we know who's getting carded. We don't necessarily know, nor can we know why always people are getting carded. And this comes to the implicit bias thing you were saying. It's become such a complicated issue because the one group, one people, one People who hold a belief that carding is inherently racist or inherently evil says police are using racist practices to stop more minorities because that's their view that that's who's committing the crimes or who could potentially be committing the crimes. There's the other side that says, and it's a very politically incorrect thing to even ask, which would be, is there a chance that more minorities are committing crimes or on a higher basis? We don't have any stats. So how you see this, Ross, is in inevitably going to come from where your philosophy, where your belief starts in this. If you believe that the police are using racist practices, you will believe that the numbers of minorities being carded is wrong and that they are being targeted. And if you believe that police are being fair, you may say, well, if we looked at stats, maybe, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe there are more minorities committing crimes. It's impossible to wade through because no one would be able or would be allowed or would want to do a study on that. I don't think it's way too, way too inflammable, inflammatory. Well, first of all, a lot of this is based on a belief that's based on a flawed study that was done over a decade ago by the Toronto Star 
where they put out a report, and I encourage people, go find it on Google, look up the original report, and read what they put right at the start of their study, that this is a flawed way of doing a study, that it doesn't include all the data, that we didn't have all the data we needed to do it with. So it tells you right off the bat, their numbers are basically hooey. And then in the report, they interviewed activists who said, oh, I look at the data and that proves the police are racist. There was no proof. There was no proof of that. That being said, once again, I go back to the carding being wrong. And when it comes back to the crime, I will say this. It seems that our murderers across Ontario and the GTA are predominantly racist. Because if you're a young black man in Ontario, your chances of being killed by a bullet by another young black man are way, 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 way higher than anybody else's. So I I just want to see the killing stop. I've talked to people who sat in wheelchairs, who are innocent people that were paralyzed by this. I've talked to mothers who've lost their sons, daughters who've been shot in the legs when they were at clubs, all people of color, by the way, who didn't deserve any of that. And I don't see anything being done to stop that carnage going on. Uh, the numbers, and I pulled this off the police, uh, Toronto Police website, didn't find it for Hamilton, but we'll use Toronto as an example because it is the biggest city in Canada since. So the numbers are in 2014, 27 people were killed, 177 were shot, and this is gun violence, of course, only. 2015, up to 20, or one down in killings, but way up in shootings, 26 and 288 shootings. 20, uh, 2016, 63 people killed, 407 shootings. 2007, 53, 395. 2018, almost 100 and 424 shootings. The numbers are going up and going up considerably since this became a discussion, a real discussion point. Is, could you look at this and say, well, that's just the state of the city. Things are changing. It's becoming more violent. Guns are more prevalently more available. Or do you look at it and say, no, no, I clearly see a line there between no carding and these kind of things happening. Oh, it's very clear. Look, even way back in the day when I used to wear a uniform for doing stuff, the bad guys, the real bad guys, they could quote you the law and when they can get on, on probation and parole and what they're likely to get and what their lawyers are going to cost. They got their lawyers basically on speed dial. They know exactly what the law is when they're breaking it. That's why before the law changed uh, in 2012, when the court, as I said, struck down the, the minimums, what used to happen in the housing complexes is they would have a community gun. It would be hidden somewhere. And if they needed the gun, they'd send out signals. Someone would run and go get the gun and bring the gun out so they had it. They also had people, if you go around some of these areas, they do what's called keeping six. They're looking for anybody who looks like they could be a cop or an actual cop. And if they see that, they put a little hand signal. That gets relayed down across, and the guns get taken and hidden. They did not carry the guns. Because if they carried the guns, they knew they were going away for three years or more based on what the charge was going to be. So that all changed when that law went out. That was the big change that did it all. And then the no carding, meaning I can get in trouble if I try and stop to someone who might be carrying, that just exacerbated. That allowed it to grow. That was pouring gas on the fire. Ross McLean, he is a crime specialist, a security expert, former Toronto police. Appreciate the time, Ross. Happy New Year. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. The difficulty that we're facing, when even with this report out, the thing that is very obvious about this is we're not going to, it seems unlikely we're going to come to any kind of conclusion, any kind of agreement on this ever, because where you start on this is where you're going to end up on this. If you believe, and you have, you're, you're fully entitled to believe this because everyone's allowed their own opinion, but if you believe that carding, that stopping people is done by police is an inherently or likely racist practice because police are more likely to stop minorities, then you will probably also follow that down to say carding must be stopped and there will be no, there's no connection between not carding and crime going up. Those are two different things and they may be. And we don't know exactly. Ross says absolutely there is, but we don't know exactly because there's not studies that can draw those things together. On the other hand, if you say, well, wait a second, we know or we believe or stats would show that a lot of times in less fortunate neighborhoods, less economically advanced neighborhoods, there tends to be more crime or there has been in the past more crime. And in some of those places, it has a higher minority population. Therefore, police going there are going to necessarily stop more people and that's going to drive up the numbers and it's not racist, it's something different then you're probably going to believe that carding is a good police tool 
that is a useful police tool and that it's not racist by definition. But the problem we're having is that nobody on either side of that chasm is going to agree with each other. Nobody is going to jump to the other side. Where you start is where you finish. And that's going to be the way it is, I believe. I don't, th- I don't see the way that we're going to re- come to any kind of conclusion. So this is going to be a debate forever. And forever, those who believe in carding are going to say increasing gun numbers are the result of us banning it. And everyone else who says no, carding is racist are going to say there's no connection as this justice did. There's no reason to believe in carding. It doesn't do any good. Find a different way. And if you think this is the last time we're going to be hearing a debate about this, well... Stick around. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is January the 2nd, which means you have had 24, well, 34 now, because it's 10 a.m., 34 hours to work on your New Year's resolutions, whatever they may have been. And I'm sure lots of people listening came up with lots of New Year's resolutions, have lots of new ideas of things they're going to do to better themselves. They're going to get more sleep. They're going to spend more time with their family. They're going to get more exercise. They're going to stop smoking. They're going to cut back on the drinking, less meat, more vegan, more vegetarian, more fresh air, more traveling, more saving, pick whatever it is. Lots of people came up with something leading up to New Year's that they said, that's me this year. 2019 is the year of me and I'm going to fix me and things are going to be much, much better. And so I am here to completely blow apart your dreams (laughs) because there is a new research study out by Strava, which is a social network for athletes that did this research looking at social media posts online postings from people who either started a New Year's resolution and did something with it or not, but they looked at 31.5 million online global postings last year, last January. And this company, Strava, was able to pinpoint using precise science. I mean, the kind of science that Albert Einstein would have appreciated. Not quite. It's a little more general than that. But using science, they have said, we can break down on average when New Year's resolutions came to a crashing halt. And that means it's January 2nd. Enjoy your resolution for 10 more days because come January the 12th, abandon hope all ye who enter here. Your resolutions are done. You're back to the meat. You're back to the cigarettes. You're back to the booze. You're back to staying up too late. January 12th is when resolutions die. Theo Sellis is a registered family therapist. He is the president of Integrity Works. And I don't know if he's a man who made New Year's resolutions, but he will tell us as he joins us now. Theo, how are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Happy New Year. What was your New Year's resolution, can I ask, or did you have one? I know better, my friend. Yeah, see? And and look, I didn't get drunk. And this is when a lot of people make the resolutions when everything (laughs) seems possible anyway. Let's suppose you're drunk and you make the resolution to, like, I don't know, exercise more, but then you wake up the next day with a hangover. Who's going to feel like exercising? So there you go. You can't do it already. See, I think that on January 1st, that probably around noon is when a lot of those resolutions are made 12 hours into the year. I'm never drinking again. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then that lasts until, yeah, that lasts until their friend pops over at two o'clock and they go, okay, we'll have one more. Just to get Uh, over it. Why, Theo, why do we now, and and look, uh, this is, it's an online survey. It was a study that was done. Of course, I'm being facetious when I say hard science is playing into this, but I don't think either you or I, nor anyone else listening really doubts the general concept that it's probably half a month that we give most people before they gas most of their resolutions. Why is it? Why do we seem to have so little self-discipline that we generally will not stick with the thing that we have decided is going to better us? Well, uh, first of all, look, it takes a second to make a resolution and it can take a lifetime to keep it. So great point. uh, First one is a lot easier to do. And generally speaking, we tend to do things that we experience as being rewarding and we tend to avoid things that we tend to experience as being punishing, that we're losing something out of or is a kind of a hardship for us. And most of our resolutions are around things like, you know, eating and drinking and sleeping and uh, exercising and maybe not spending as much. And so when we try to resolve to do less of spending or less of eating and more of exercising, 
we're saying we're going to do things that we are not going to experience as being rewarding. And over time, we tend to re- avoid things that are not very, very rewarding. And so it makes it harder and harder for us to keep doing it. But having said that, making a resolution in and of itself is very rewarding. You know, like it feels great. I am resolved to eat less junk and work out more. I'm going to go to the gym. And then especially if you share it with people, then you get like people going, wow, you're awesome. That's awesome. You're great. So you already get the reward. Uh, But that reward does not last very long in the face of the punishments that you now experience about no longer being able to eat those sausages and having to go to the gym and not spending on more pairs of shoes or whatever like that. That does not last very long. So it's pretty difficult to maintain. Theo, your point is bang on, I think, because we are not a exactly a society that thrives on putting off instant gratification. We we are not. We've been told forever if it feels good, do it, or you deserve to be happy, and and all that kind of stuff. None of those things mesh with what you're talking about, where you now have to put out some sort of real effort that doesn't feel good and stick with it. Well, one of the biggest things you can teach your kids, maybe one of the most important psychological lessons traits, abilities, capacities, exactly what you're talking about, is the ability to delay gratification. Now, having said that, in the face of new technology, uh, it is becoming increasingly difficult for kids to learn that skill because they're exposed to all kinds of messages all the time, and they get the immediate gratification of the texting and the responding and the pictures and all that kind of stuff. There's a, this is a generation that's extremely hooked on immediate gratification. So it's becoming less and less uh, uh possible for them uh, to be able to delay something, be able to say, look, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage in this particular activity because it's not rewarding. I'll get the long-term reward of not spending money. I'll save something up and I'll get something down the road. Uh, It's becoming harder and harder for kids to do that because they're in a world of immediate gratification. Whereas before, uh, past generations, there was much more of a sense of, uh, yeah, you know what? You just hold off. You're not going to get something right away. You put your effort into it. You put your work in it. And the actual process of work that discipline was experienced as being rewarding. It was considered to be character building. It was part of what you did in order to feel good about yourself. So these are like entrenched sort of values that we had that I think that we are losing uh, bit by bit as we go on. And by the way, it's even worse than I originally stated when I said that everyone will give up by January 12th because the University of Scranton did a study of its own. And I don't know much about the University of Scranton, but um, they found that just 8% of people achieve their New Year's goals, 80% fail to keep it for at least a week. So it makes me wonder if we are just really, really weak or if we're doing this whole thing really, really wrong. Because there are things that we do want to change about ourselves, and there has to be a way that we can do it. Well, uh, I'll, I'll throw a study right back at you. There's, uh, there's another study, that I can't remember where I just uh, read it a little while ago, actually. It's funny. Uh, where people were surveyed, um, I think it was North Americans, I don't know, like, like 100,000 or something American, North Americans were surveyed about how long they thought it was reasonable and uh, to be able to hold a New Year's resolution to keep it. Like, what would be considered to be an accepted, hey, you've kept your New Year's resolution? And uh, the, uh, if you reached, according to the study, people said, look, if you kept it for three months, you can consider yourself to be a success. So, uh, so we already build in this idea that we aren't going to keep it anyway. So as long as we keep it for a while, we can say, hey, we... And we can still brag about it to our friends. Yeah, I hit the gym for like, I did it for three months, or I stopped smoking for three months, or I, you know, like, so we get that, yeah, we, we can justify that we've done it, and then we give ourselves the reward of not doing it anymore. Hey, you were a good guy. You've not eaten that crap for a long time. You're going to have that stuff. Hey, you haven't smoked for a while. Ah, what's the few? You, you, you know, you've earned it. So we, we kind of build in this kind of, we earn the thing that we're not supposed to do anymore by not doing it for a while. Theo, the funny part about this whole thing, and I got thinking about this this morning, is January 1st is this beautiful, clean slate, I suppose, idea. The calendar has flipped over. It's all empty. But why does it seem to us, why have we created in our heads that somehow doing something on January 1st to make a change in our life is easier than starting to change something on November 18 or May 26th or February 4 or any other day in the calendar? That's a good question. I haven't haven't bought into it. I tend to... It's the one holiday slash, if it's a holiday, I'm not sure, uh, that I tend to avoid because of that kind of thing. I think there's a couple of reasons. One is um, kind of magical thinking, and the other one is sort of we like to be part of a, a larger group. So uh, magical thinking is that, yeah, maybe there's something about this day. It's a brand-new, fresh slate. It's because of this day. So it's sort of like a, 
it'll be a special occasion that'll make it more likely for me to be able to keep the resolution kind of thing. And the other thing is we do kind of like sort of crowd, a sort of crowd mentality, being part of a crowd. So if a bunch of people are all going to do this together, we want to feel part of that. We want to feel part of that whole larger celebration thing. Other people are making resolutions. Damn it, I'm going to make resolutions too. I got to fit in and make those resolutions. Uh, which, of course, again, those are not really good reasons to su- suggest that you're going to be able to keep them. We have a couple more minutes with Theo, but meanwhile, I want to give out the number here because if someone out there, if those of you listening, if you've made resolutions, now I don't want to be the splash of cold water on all your hopes and dreams that to lose weight and everything else. Maybe talking about it on the air will will buck the trend and make you stick to it. 905-645-3221 star 9900. If you have a New Year's resolution that you are willing to tell us about, I would love to hear it, especially if it was something a little bit unique. But 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you want to talk about your New Year's resolution or why you didn't make one. But back to Theo for a second. I'm wondering, Theo, if another part of this is we create these expectations. I wonder if we, if we downgraded our expectations a bit instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to get in shape and look like I'm a fitness model as opposed to saying, I'm going to drop five pounds. Does that make it easier? Does that make it better? Does that actually allow us to hit targets that we might stick with then? Yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of like in tourism, we, we talk a lot about setting achievable goals and attainable goals and they're called SMART goals, right? We can Google them up. Smart goals are broken down into these little steps, and one of the components is making sure that it's uh, attainable and it's achievable. And so, um, you know, like if you're like 50 pounds overweight, then the idea of like, hey, I'm going to be like, I'm going to lose 50 pounds is not, that's pretty overwhelming. It takes a while to lose 50 pounds at least healthily. And so the idea is, I'm going to like eat a little bit more healthier. I'm going to like, you know, get a little bit more activity. So I'm going to be focusing on how I live rather than the ultimate goal of 50 pounds down the road. I'm going to look like that. Break it down into small parts of it. Um, and, you know, really, the idea is also is to try to make it so that it doesn't seem like a punishment to you. Because really, mm. we're wired to avoid punishment. So, I, for instance, when people talk about going to the gym, I recoil. I just can't stand going to the gym. I know I should go to the gym. That'd be an awesome thing. But I'm, like a, I'm wired to avoid things I should do that I'm not going to enjoy. So maybe I'll play hockey more. I'll, I mean, I'm like a laboratory retriever. If you throw a ball or a puck in front of me, I lose my mind and I keep chasing it <laughs> until someone hides it. And, I, and I'm in the process, I'll, at the end of it all, when I'm like panting, I've ex, I, I realize I've done some exercise. Oh, wow, that's really cool. But uh, I don't, I'm not going to, I know that I'm not going to go to the gym, but I'll do things that are active that I'll enjoy and I'll build that more into our lives. So if we stop thinking about, well, we should do these things and think of all as grim things that I have, I have to do that are really seen as punishing and find things that we can find joy and fun in that still help us achieve our goals, we'll probably be more successful because we're involved in something that we enjoy as opposed to something that we have to do. Yeah, and I'm not sure that some of these reality TV shows are actually helping with some of these. When you can watch in an hour, someone lose 300 pounds, and then when you go to the gym for two months and you've lost six, <laughs> you're going, this, yeah. this is not working. So I but just they, I got to give up. But they don't show the after effect because it's very rare for someone to maintain that. They've got all this support and they've got all this attention. They've got all this focus. We've got everyone like celebrating them. That's very, very rewarding. But when the cameras go away and people go on in their lives, because it's ultimately it's not that thrilling to watch someone over a long period of time lose weight or be lost weight. So when those, that attention goes away, that reward goes away, then you're left with yourself. And now you have to do something that you find rewarding as opposed to, well, I've got to keep on doing these things that I really hate or I give up things that I really want to have. So when the light camera lets go off and people's attention goes away, People go back, tend to go back, and they end up losing, I mean, gaining those 300 pounds again. I think we may just want to go with the Seinfeld plan, the George Costanza plan here. If we are doomed to fail, whatever we choose to do for our New Year's resolution, it is bound to be the opposite. We should vow to smoke more, to drink more, to eat more, to exercise less, to sleep less, and maybe, Theo, that may be the secret here. Because we're going to fail shoot for the worst part, and we'll actually get ourselves better. That is a very bad idea. It's funny, <laughs> but it's a very bad idea. Because basically you're saying, hey, just give yourself permission to do as much as you can, and maybe you'll get sick of it. That's my resolution. I want to get fatter, <laughs> I want to get in worse shape, and I want to get more tired. And you will, without a doubt, be one of those you who is able to keep it. If you make those, <laughs> you'll be successful at least at keeping your resolution, and you can feel good about yourself for the short period of time you still have to live. Theo Sellis. Registered Family Therapist, President of Integrity Works. Thank you so much for your time. Happy New Year, Theo. Yeah, same to you. Take care. Uh, Yeah, that probably is a poor plan, just for the record. 
if, if I mean, even if you're convinced that you're going to fail at your New Year's resolution, probably shooting for the opposite is not a great, although, you know, if someone out there wants to take a stab at that one, if someone wants to take, to do as an experiment, you want to lose weight? Okay. I'm going to try to gain weight because I know I'm going to fail at my resolution. I would love to hear how that experiment goes. I will say this last year, come January 1st, and anyone who goes to the gym and I go to the gym most nights, anyone who goes to a gym will be able to share this story. January 1st rolls around and suddenly the equipment that was available all through the year that you could get on the elliptical or get on the exercise bike or get on the treadmill or use the weights. January 1st, the gym is jammed with people you've never seen before. Of course, they've all just signed up jammed with people who are all motivated to work out doing exercises that could best be described as curious. (laughs) Uh, you know, I am hardly an exercise expert. Jack LaLanne, I am not, for those who remember that reference. I am hardly an expert, but I, even I know when sometimes you can tell who the newbie is who's never been to a gym before. They are the sampler, the person who shows up, tries the treadmill for two minutes. That's kind of tiring. So they go and do some bicep curls and that gets tiring and then does a few pull-down lat things and then does a this and does a that. And, and then, at, you know, 20 minutes in, they're done. Or, or the other quick way, if you go to the gym and you want to recognize who the new year's resolutionites are in the gym is the guy. And it's usually a guy. It's almost always a guy on his first day at the gym decides, you know what? There's only one muscle in my body that needs working on. That's my biceps and grabs the heaviest dumbbells that he can possibly lift and tries to do a few curls because I mean, if you're going to go to the gym, the muscle that you got to build up is your biceps. That, you know, that's, that's the, that's the money muscle right there. That's the one that people are going to see in the t-shirt and ends up doing so much damage, making themselves so sore. They never come back in last year. It was, I don't know if it was exactly January 12, which is when this study says people basically have up, but it was around that time that I took a picture of the gym at night. I was the only one in there. So if you're, if you're a regular at the gym, just ride it out because all the new people will be gone within a week or two. And you know who loves this? You know who loves this more than anyone else? The owners of the gyms. Because they've now got a year of payment from you, month by month, coming off, because you're thinking, I'm going to do it, and then you never cancel. And the money just flows into the gym owners, and no one actually uses the equipment more than they were before. It's a beautiful setup. Buy a gym if you've got the money. That's how you make a fortune. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.